Hey guys, welcome to the Journey of Ruth podcast, where we desire to see believers develop a deep and intimate love for Jesus and His Word, and inspire that same love within others through discipleship. I am your host, Courtney Loman. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad you chose to join us for this week's episode. Currently, I'm taking a step back for a few months to focus on being the best God-honoring mom and wife I can. However, We have had so many wonderful guests that I felt like we could still learn from the wisdom they shared. With that in mind, please enjoy this week's episode from the archives. Well, thank you so much for joining us today from Wales, from Pembroke Dock, Wales. Is that right? Are you Pembroke Dock? Pembroke? Yes, Pembroke. Okay. There are two towns. Uh... Pembroke is the older one. Mm-hmm. It's where they built a castle when a guy called William the Conqueror came over and the Normans appeared. And it was a, a place where the Normans established their sovereignty over the wild and woolly Welsh, you know, those people <laughs> who couldn't be tamed. <laughs> Pembroke Dock uh, was more of a dockyard. It was very busy in the Napoleonic Wars and things like that. And there was a large American influence during World War II. Interesting. Okay, mm. well, that would make sense because you guys are on the southern portion of Wales. That's right. So, yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Well, um, so Rob and I met, gosh, when I was <laughs> so young. I think yeah, I was a, a freshman ago. in high yeah. school. <laughs> yeah. And we came over to Wales. We brought a group over on a mission trip. And that began... A relationship between our families and my parents have visited well my mom was with me on the first trip but <laughs> my mom decided my dad need to come and visit you guys my brother has been so um Pembroke feels very much like a second home to us <laughs> in my opinion so if I remember correctly we celebrated your mom's 25th anniversary in Pembroke Castle Yes, that did happen because that was kind of that's when she took my dad my dad had met you guys when you guys came over mm. but He'd never been to Pembroke, so he'd never gotten to experience that. So he was very um, keen to come over and visit you guys. So we gave them that as their 25th anniversary present. So, yes. Um, So, of course, I've known you for so long. You know, I know about your family. But uh, tell our listeners about your family and about yourself and that type of stuff. Yeah. I When I was about 18 or 19, I was a complete atheist. I rejected church. Uh I, I felt that knowing God would twist my life in such a, a way that I would never enjoy it. Uh, I could see no evidence for, for faith anyway. Uh, I was at the university doing a degree in history, Middle Eastern history and Arabic. And I met the lady who became my wife, Mo. Uh, I, I gave her a challenge on one occasion. I said, it was either God or me. And she chose <laughs> God. She chose God. Can you believe it? So, Aren't you I, so I, glad a, she did? <laughs> I, I think then maybe as a prize he gave her me. Uh, but we've been married ever since. We've got four lovely kids, uh, four boys. There was always going to be one little boy, one little girl, but it turned out to be four elephants. <laughs> and, uh, all, all, all are married. Uh, uh, three of them have children. One has only just got married, Pete, who you know best. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard who heads up the YMCA in London, is married to Debbie, 
who's uh, number two at the Church Missionary Society, which is the Church of England's Missionary Society. Okay. Uh, twins, because we cheated in the middle and had two. Uh, Simon is in charge of flood control for Wales, and he's married to Rebecca, who married, who works for the Welsh Senedd, the, the our local parliament. She's a researcher. They've got two little boys. David, the other twin, is a deputy head working in Malaysia, and he's married to a lady called Wakana. She's Japanese, and he met her when he was working out there. One of her interesting jobs was that she was developing and in, uh, working in a program for reintegrating and helping child soldiers, wow. which was really fascinating. And then Pete is working for the London Baptist Association, uh, safeguarding, developing a safeguarding strategy and working with children and youth. Joey's wife works for the International Relief Agency, Tear Fund, and she's very much uh, in charge of the justice program, which has got the American end as well. Mm -hmm. She's about to Indonesia and uh, Australia in the and Hong Kong in, in the next couple of weeks. And uh, she's, I think America is part of her remit as well. So that's our little family. It's amazing to me because I feel like all of those jobs are so important and so impactful. <laughs> So you did something in raising your boys right because, I mean, you know, they're all doing such wonderful and great things. Well, we, we Mo, I think, particularly saw uh, the, the children as a vocation. Mm. They were God's gift to, to us, and she poured her heart and soul into it. And um, she, she didn't work for many years. She, she didn't return to work, and she's always worked with children in school or, or in children's homes. Um, but she didn't do that until the children were old enough you know, to, to be okay. And so she's invested her heart and soul and life and prayer life particularly into them, and they've just been God's answer to us. We, we've never had a problem, never a real problem, other than the usual, oh, are they okay, or <laughs> they're on the road, or, you know, they're traveling a lot, but no. Right. Mm. Well, um, I know when we met you that you were pastoring a church, but your role has kind of changed since then. So can you tell us what you do now, what your job is? Yeah. Um, I'm itinerant now, and I work freelance. I've retired from full-time local pastoral ministry. I trained. I began life as a teacher, teaching history and French. And then I had a, a call into ministry that just came out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it. Mo wasn't expecting it. It was just remarkable. And it was based on the passage in Isaiah 6 when God spoke to me and said, who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And so we went back to college and trained for three years with no money coming in whatsoever, uh, other than we, you know, we prayed it in and we believed it would come in. And it did. Uh, so that was Mo, myself, and three children at the time, three little children. Wow. Yeah, it was quite something. And then I became a Baptist pastor, and I pastored Baptist churches in Pembrokeshire, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, in, I pastored a church in Swansea, and I pastored a church in Bridgend, which is nearer to Cardiff. But having said that, I've never, ever felt called away from Pembrokeshire. We, we knew it was here that we had to come, and it's here that we had to stay, and it's out of Pembrokeshire that we, we work. So I now operate, serve on behalf of a, 
an organization called Evangelical Alliance, which UK-wise, we have about 2 million members. In Wales, we have 60,000 members. And it's the John 17 aim of we may be one, the, the world might know that Jesus is the one he claims to be. We, we believe the same gospel, so there's a you know foundation of faith there in terms of scripture and, and the basic truths of scripture. But we work across denominations if we can agree on that. And I, I'm on the board nationally, I'm on the council nationally, I'm chair of the executive in Wales, and I serve as a church and media consultant. So that means I preach and I teach and I encourage churches to look at their life in the light of a totally changed situation. Now that, as you've said, we've gone from, almost gone from a post-Christian culture into a non-Christian culture, you know, in a new age. So what is the church meant to be like? And particularly because of my gifting and calling, as I think I have, a sense of how can we use media to to reach our whole community. God spoke to me in that way some years ago, about 20 odd years ago now, and he said, how can you reach the whole of your community? Mm. And I thought, well, I could write and I could broadcast. And that, that's just been a phenomenal blessing ever since. So it's helping churches rethink what it means to be church in the 21st century Wales. Um, so you talked about how you guys have moved from a post-Christian culture into a non-Christian culture. So, I mean, I'm sure you could talk for hours on this, <laughs> but can you explain what the religious climate is like in Wales? Cause I think the, it might be, I think it might be surprising to our American listeners cause uh, it's a little bit different than what we experience here in America. Yeah, there's a guy called Stephen Bullivan, professor of theology and sociology in St. Mary's University. Twickenham has just done some survey again, and he, he put it this way. The rise of the non-religious is arguably the story of British religious history over the post half century or so. Um, you know, the survey was called No Religion. And of all those countries within the United Kingdom, Wales is probably the, the most I don't do God culture. So I think figures would suggest that something like 60% of people in Wales don't do God. Any uh, God. And, uh, vaguely, they'll have all kinds of vague ideas, but God doesn't isn't on their radar. Okay. Um, you know, I, you may talk about this later, but I, I go into schools regularly and talk, and I was walking through town a little while ago, and some kids came up and said, hey, vicar, because that's how they understand me. I'm the vicar, uh, although I'm not. Um, you don't really believe that stuff, do you? You know, so I, I then about half an hour sat there talking to them. But actually, yes, I do. So why do you believe it, Vicar? I know you've got to come into school because, put it another way, just before Christmas in one of those assemblies, I threw out a question to a group of about 200 kids, 200 plus kids. So where was Jesus born? And not a hand went up. And they're, they're, they're not a quiet bunch of kids. Uh, they're keen to be involved and so on. And then one hand went up and I said, yes, where was Jesus born? Pembroke Doxa. Hmm. Um, yeah, we, we're running uh, uh, an initiative that we've called Messy Church with uh, for people. Who, and it's framed in such a way that it would never, it's for people who would never go to church, would never hmm. think of going to church. They, they love the values that we're teaching. They, they, 
we've had to give up Bibles. They don't have Bibles. They've never read the Bible. And we're talking mums now or dads in their 30s. So wow. I remember sitting in a, a drop-in centre. We were running sometime around the time when you and your parents came over, talking to some American folk. And they said, I think we can see the United States 20 years time because they already began to hit that sense of declining figures, declining interest. Wales is the most don't do God uh, country in the United Kingdom, I think. And yet, amazingly, we were the nation that has seen most revivals in, in British history. Wow. Just over 100 years ago, two th 1904, we saw 100,000 people come to faith in a few months. Wow. We, we saw this change dramatically. The, I've got a record, on, uh, an eyewitness account on my shelves, <clears throat> gent by the name of David Matthews, who said he, the night he came to faith, he stood out, he, he went into a church at seven o'clock at night, uh, thought he'd been there for 10 minutes. He went in as a, an agnostic come atheist. He thought he'd been there for 10 minutes. He'd actually been there for from seven o'clock at night till six in the morning. And when he came out, the the line of people waiting to go in was stretching into the distance. Wow. We've gone from that to where we are today. Oh, Jesus was born in Pembroke Dock. Hmm. It's just over a hundred years. To hear that you were able to go in and talk about Jesus in the schools <laughs> would be kind of shocking to, uh, an American listener because that that doesn't happen especially yeah. not on a broad spect spectrum there might be some clubs or whatever where that's happening but as far as like hey everyone go to the gym and we're gonna have this guy talk to us uh what are you talking about when you're going into the schools I I've got complete freedom uh I I've thought about why I can do it a I think you know I love doing it and I was a teacher anyway mm -hmm. but I'm not the only one who does it we have folk who go in and do things like walk through the Bible in schools locally. I think it's twofold. There's a residue. It's residual. Mm -hmm. There's still that sense of, oh, this should happen. And, you know, the, one of the schools I go into is, is a church school. Uh, other local okay. authority schools, it would be expected and part of it. In uh, Legally, there's been the need in the past for assembly, although it's increasingly important that it's a diverse thing in terms of multi-faith okay but i i've got complete freedom i think i'm a, i've got a more of an open door here than in many parts of england in some of the major cities but when i go in uh straight down the line so you know i i talk i think the things i try to get over uh, number one every child is special so in some way, I try and talk about God making them and try and use all kinds of visuals and quizzes and involvement mm -hmm. so that they realize they're unique, they're special, they're loved. And then I go on to talk about Jesus and how he expressed that love and, you know, and so on. So at the moment, one little thing I'm doing in an assembly is I'm taking a bag in with, with three objects in and saying, so... Want a couple of volunteers? Will you just put your hand in the bag and tell me what's in my bag without looking? Stop looking, you know, because they try. <laughs> Don't let anyone else tell you what's in there. And um, in that bag, that plastic bag, which can't isn't see-through, I have a compass. 
at campus saw my dad through the desert in World War II. He was in the SAS. Wow. And uh, he was on his own for a whole week in the desert, and he survived. Incredible story. Uh, but it was the compass that saved his life. There, there's a cross, a little wooden cross that someone gave me, and there's a spoon. And I'm showing the kids that all three objects point to the Bible. So I say it reminds me of the Bible because it points you to life and how to live and how to gain real life and how to live forever. I, I point to the cross and talk about how much God loves them and how special they are. You know, they're the unique and incredibly valuable to him. And the third is that it's like food. It, it will give you strength. It will give you the energy you live in your inner being, because it's not just our physical bodies, but we need inner strength as well in our spirit. So I go in and talk about things like that. So when you're doing these uh, assemblies with them, is it just you? You said, you know, that it, sometimes it has to be interfaith. So are they having someone come in that's, uh, you know, maybe Muslim or someone that's coming in? Or is it just you? Here in Pembrokeshire, we don't have that, no. No, okay. no need, okay. no, no. But we're aware that we're living in a multi-faith society now, and you know we have to be, as a whole United Kingdom, aware of that. And do they teach the Bible as a faith book, or do they teach it as a historical book? I guess I guess you're the one teaching, so I know you would teach it as a faith book. But how is it? How is the Bible seen for these kids? I think there is no opposition in. In RE and things like that, obviously it's an introduction to religion and to looking at religions and so on like that. But again, we, we have a um, an initiative called Jesus Live, G-S-U-S Live, and it's an evangelistic thing where huge lorries, trucks, trailers are taken into schools and kids are allowed to take part in interactive issues on computer and things like that. And that will be happening in several schools locally again now in, in um, just after Christmas. So now we're, we're allowed to talk about that. It's so, Yeah, it's strange. You know, we, we're in that post-Christian culture. But I, I know someone who's an evangelist throughout Europe, and he talks about the, the, the way in which Europe has gone the way that we have within the United Kingdom. He says, but actually, and I find this, the opportunities are amazing mm. because you're not dealing with people who've been inoculated against church. You're not dealing with people who've had a taste and have been put off. That that was my generation. You're dealing with a completely, almost like the first century, you know, that you can talk about things that are exciting and buzzing. And he finds with students, all the work he does, he says, students love to be countercultural anyway. I mean, <laughs> At the moment, there's probably nothing more countercultural than being a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. Man, so he's, he sees as I see the positive. Yeah. It's so, it's just, I do find it interesting in the same way that you're saying. Um, I know when I was in France that people saw religion, not a particular religion, just religion in general as something their grandparents did. Mm. But because mm. of that, Religion was, um, it was something we could talk about because mm -hmm. it wasn't something that was so personal to them. Yep. 
So it wasn't like, well, I have this belief and you're saying something different. So therefore I'm going to argue with it. It was just like, I don't really have a religion. That's what I, you know, I, I go to church or I go to mass or whatever synagogue with my grandma whenever she asks me to come. But other than that, I don't really do God exactly what you're saying. And, and some of the conversations we were able to have were really cool. And some of their thoughts and their perspectives on Jesus were amazing because they asked questions that I almost had never thought to ask. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's raw. It's real. It, it's interesting. You should talk about France because in the evangelical Alliance that I, I talked to you about, we, we have people who are employed. One of our key leaders in London spent some time recently for a year or two, at least working in France. And when she went there with her husband, she thought, Oh, this is going to be so depressing. You know, France is a graveyard to any form of evangelism. And she was just amazed at what God was doing. In fact, she's told us at council that, and it's because evangelicals are coming together and working together a little bit more, she thinks. In France at the moment, there's a new church being planted every 10 days. Wow. Which is a remarkable figure. Yeah. So she, she was buzzing. You know, she thought she was going to a graveyard and she was in a in a garden nursery beginning to see the buds coming up. Oh, I love that picture. I, I really do, because I think it does feel so much like acts, you know, what they were mm-hmm. seeing and um, and that there were believers being added to their number every day. And you don't plan a church every 10 days unless you have those new believers. Right. Because you got to fill uh, those uh, churches. Buzzing with it. Yeah. You know, we. We, we've started an initiative in town called Messy Church. Yes, yeah, uh, talk about Messy Church, because I, I love this. When I ceased working in a single pastorate, Mo, Mo was wondering what she would do, because she's got an evangelistic heart, she loves working with children and families. You know, she's she, she's worked in school with kids, she's run mother and toddler groups, she's done parenting classes, things like that. And what am I going to do, was her thought. I challenged her and one or two others to, to seek God, and they knew they had to do something for children and young people. And so they began to look at ways in which they could reach, and we knew it had to be reaching people who wouldn't go to church, the 96% or whatever it is, or 95% who would not want to go to church, wouldn't be attracted by church, and many have been put off by church. You say 96 or 95%. Is that 95% of your community would not go to church yeah okay so we we'd have maybe three or four percent who would normally go to church on a sunday they designed a program of craft and games of songs you name it that would in, kids and adults would enjoy and we've deliberately placed it in a non-church building in the town hall okay yeah because that's what people want. And it's where people will come. In fact, our local mayors have said, thank you so much for, for not putting it in a church, for coming to us, not waiting for us to come to you. And so, you know, we, we designed that. We didn't have a messy church model. We were looking for a name and things like that. And we came across the, the, the model and it worked perfectly with what we were trying to do. So we joined the messy church organization 
<clears throat> so you guys did not create this. Someone else created it, but you're taking it and implementing it's it. It's a national thing, and it's growing, and it's very effective. But what we did, they told us in, in Wales, we were the only one who did it. Most churches do it as an extension of their work. We did it as a, a unique expression. So we were not linked to a church so that people couldn't think, oh, you're trying to get me into your church. And people keep saying, oh, thank you that you're coming to us. Mm-hmm. We've adopted what the, the Celtic church did. We want people to feel they belong before they believe. Want they to get belong involved. before they believe. Yeah. Hmm. When the Celtic church... Uh, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, was faced with a massive evangelistic challenge. It it adopted the whole principle of reaching people and getting involved in people's lives and caring for them and loving them and meeting their needs and making them feel welcome. And then the conversations begin. Hmm. And so, whereas it's been a traditional uh, Christian practice in Christendom for hundreds of years of when you believe you belong. Yeah. The Celtic model was we want you to feel part of this and prayerfully and hopefully, and it happens, people come to faith because they feel part of that loved experience of fellowship. And it works. Mm. Meeting their needs before you, meeting their physical or emotional needs before you meet their spiritual needs. Yeah, you you get close to them. They they they, they feel loved. Hmm. There's an American evangelist teacher called Michael Frost who told the story of how once he was speaking at a conference and when he finished, two people came up and tore him apart. And to, well, the first one tore him apart and told him how badly he'd done it. He said, "I'm Australian." And he said, because I'm Australian, I flipped and I told this guy where to go. The second chap looked at me and said, ah. And he said, so what do you want? And the other guy said, I just wanted to know how you dealt with confrontation. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then he went on and he said, if my wife had offered a critique, because she, I know she loves me, I would have received it. He said, because... Someone I didn't know, I didn't know where he was coming from, I didn't know what his agenda was, cut me down, I reacted. Mm. And he said, there's a lesson there for church, particularly in a post-Christian culture. People have to feel that you love them if you're offering things that challenge them. I think there's so much truth in that. Yeah. Because basically, if you're talking about people being sinners... There's a note of challenge and condemnation there, isn't there? Yeah, If you're absolutely. telling people that Jesus is not the Lord of their lives, but he needs to be, you've got to have that relationship first. And I think Michael Frost had so much to teach us there. Yeah, wow. And I, I love just the idea of it being so open to your visitors <clears throat> and that it's not found <clears throat> in a church. I know life can be hard and it becomes even more difficult when you feel like you're walking alone with no one to turn to. So I created the play process, a four-step guide for finding a mentor or a discipler. Pray, look, ask, and act. Our play process includes a worksheet which walks you through each step using scripture and prayer prompts. 
The play process worksheet is available for free on our website at journeyofruthpodcast.com slash download. My prayer, friends, is that no one feels alone in this world. And this is just a small way that I can help you find hope for today and tomorrow. So go download the worksheet and begin your walk through the play process today. Do you find do you find any kickback that it's not in a church from the Christians? Two twofold there. Number one, the the folk who engage in the ministry go to other churches on a Sunday and some of them are part of church. So you know, they're supportive in that way. There was an initial kickback. I know of one or two folk who were told oh, you, you ought to go to a proper church, you know, and uh, because we do Bible studies and evangelistic studies as well, people say, oh, that, that's not the thing you should do. You need to be going to a proper church. But the atmosphere has changed over the last four years. As they've seen what we're doing, there's been a much, much warmer response. And <clears throat> we have a united prayer time in town. Every two months we have a half night of prayer. And... It's been lovely to see people who I know were critical of what we were doing at the beginning praying openly for mm-hmm. what we do. And they've seen the blessing that comes from it. Yeah. Tell you a story that, that might sum it up. We recently buried a lady of 92 who was so excited by this. Now, her role was to make sure that the electric plugs were safe for children. Someone has to do that, right? <laughs> yeah, it's so key, isn't it? Uh, uh, and she was buzzing with excitement about Messy Church. She's such a part of it. And after the last Christmas session, when we were way over 100 families there, and the noise was like Super Bowl, you know, but, but in, a, <laughs> in a small church. Uh, and I, I said, Quinn, are you okay? And she looked and she said, of course. I said, but the noise and the, the, the busyness... And she said, but we're planting seeds. <laughs> For a 92-year-old, that was amazing. Yeah. And I buried her about four or five months later. Mm. And the, the family said to me, will you, will you just get some stories about her in Messy Church? Because we know it was so important to us. So I did. And one little eight-year-old said of this 92-year-old, oh, she was a lovely girl. <laughs> And then she said, every time she spoke to me, she made me feel special. Oh, man. I said at her funeral, she didn't just plant seed, she watered them. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do. If every child and every adult who comes in, and we know I have a service once a month as well now, if and we've seen conversions, we've seen baptisms. But one lady, Chinese, come to faith in the most incredible way. <clears throat> she came to her very first study when she asked if she could come. She came in at about one o'clock on a Friday lunchtime, and she went in at half past three. Totally converted. Wow! And she'd gone. She'd gone from one to a hundred in, in two two and a half hours. And she was brought up in China under Mao. She she was taught to believe there was no God. And she, she started using all the, all the right language immediately. She said, I had this hole in my heart. And you filled it. Oh, there are so many people out there who need to know how to fill this hole. Wow. So, you know, 
but we would never have met her inside the church. But mm -hmm. God was stirring mm -hmm. in her heart. And uh, the, the work I do now with Evangelical Alliance, trying to encourage churches to, to think 21st century, is to say, look, God is a missional God. That means he's a God who wants us to be involved with people who don't come. And so I challenge people, churches, to think that, that someone used this phrase, that mission should be the catalytic principle of every church. It, it should shape our budgets. It should shape our programs, even our Bible studies. Yeah. You know, the best Bible studies arise when people are trying to find answers to the questions that non-Christians have asked them. Yeah, yeah. That's so when I, I grow the most is when, and when I'm doing discipleship. I remember the first time I discipled someone, I was so scared that she was going to answer or ask a question and I wasn't going to know the answer. And she did. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know the answer to this question. And yeah. then I was instructed, Courtney, you don't have to know the answer, but now you get the blessing of going and finding the answer. And now not only has she learned something new, but you learned something new. And you get the confidence. Yeah. yeah. You don't feel, oh, I don't have the answers. I can't do it again. You think, no, this is God helping me to use me. And I grow in the process. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm totally convinced. And it's one of the things I'm trying to say to churches. If you engage with non-believers, you'll get pulled, you'll get stretched, you'll get challenged, you'll be encouraged. And God will bless you infinitely because you're doing his work. Yes, absolutely. He's the first missionary. <laughs> he was. That's right. And then yeah. he sent out a whole new group of missionaries. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We forget that. Mission is in God's heart. Mm -hmm. So it's a case of, I think it was Henry Blackaby said, join in with him. Hmm. Find out where he's working or ask him where does he want you to work that he will challenge you to do things. And so I encourage churches to see that there will be some who are evangelists, you know, they've got a public ministry like that or whatever. But the bulk of us should be praying for those. But also we should be living in such a way that our lifestyle is prompting questions. So why did you behave like that? Or why didn't you react nastily to her? Or why is your home open? Or, you know, all those things. Yeah. Not just why do you go to church, but why do you behave differently in the world? Yes. Because then they start to see almost, they, they see the effects of your faith lived out in a very tangible way. Yeah. Yeah. There's a guy called Nick Page who's written a brilliant book called Kingdom of Fools. Uh, and it's well worth looking at, history of the early church. He's got a lovely literary style. But when he talks about the Church of Antioch, and why did the church grow in such a cosmopolitan and multinational place, a huge place like Antioch, a small group of people? Uh, and in cities like that, you know, how did the early church grow? He said, among the many things were not just the, the signs and wonders, but the wonder of the fact that people, were, their lives were bafflingly self-sacrificial. Mm. People couldn't get over how lovingly self-sacrificial self these early Christians were. So, as he points out, and others do as well, when plague, which was such a scary thing in the ancient world, when plague hit cities, Christians would stay to care for those who were sick. 
and died in the process. And yeah. people looked at these Christians and said, why do they do it? That's why Tertullian said, look how these Christians love one another. Mm-hmm. You know, it was real. It wasn't just, oh, they shared a piece of cake on the Sunday after service. They were actually staying to live with people who were dying of the plague when there was no cure for it. Yeah, because it was worth their life to show them the love of Jesus. That's right. That's mission. So it's trying to challenge churches in a post-Christian culture to say, do you know what? First century was, wasn't was post-Christian, it was pre-Christian. <laughs> but same challenges. Right, right. I think it's, it's as true for what's coming your way uh, as it's been our way. Hmm. And I think one of the things we noticed in Wales was that the more the church pulled back from involvement in community and expected people to come to church. And so Christian commitment is going to any number of meetings in the church. Oh, you've got a prayer meeting five times a week. You've got a Bible study 20 times a week, you know. (laughs) So you're not involved in politics. So you're not involved in any number of things in the community. So the church began to be seen as judgmental, as hypocritical. One of our local mayors who came to the messy church picnic said to me as I picked her up and took her one Saturday, I said, thanks for coming. She said, "Mm, yeah, okay. I said, you don't go to church, do you? She said, no way. (laughs) I said, why? She said, it's boring. I thought, well, yeah, probably some forms are. Uh, And then she said the most challenging thing. She said, the church is just full of people who tell you how to live, but are no different themselves. Now, that's one of the things that is said about church in in Wales, in Britain. And there's a huge credibility gap there to to overcome. And the only way to do that is by loving and serving. One of the things that we talk about um, in our discipling classes uh, at our church is um, the idea of a bridge of relationship. And that's exactly what you guys are doing by, by doing messy church, by, by reaching out into the community, is that uh, if you have that bridge of relationship, you have the ability to be honest with them. Um, the more time you spend investing in someone, the stronger that bridge gets. Now, when you're dealing with another Christian, sometimes that's like, if the, if the bridge is strong, then you're able to, you know, admonish them. You know, you're, you're able to like say, hey, there's maybe the sin in your life. Uh, if the bridge is really weak, as soon as you say, hey, there's the sin in your life, the bridge breaks because, and they get offended and they leave. Uh, but what you're saying is it's not just that bridge isn't just built Christian to Christian. That bridge is also built to someone in your life that is a non-Christian. And we, that bridge, when it, what, with its strength, as we involve ourselves in their lives more, then we can start talking about things like faith and, and, and Jesus Christ. And because that bridge is strong, they feel safe in those conversations because there's already that bridge and that relationship there. That's the key word, safe. <clears throat> the, as you're talking, the, the story I'm thinking of is the woman at the well in Samaria. Yeah. You know, she, it's not safe for her to go out until lunchtime. It's too hot for anyone else to be about. Yeah. So she scurries off. 
<clears throat> Jesus meets her. Jews and Samaritans, they hate each other. And this Jewish rabbi, with everything to lose, looks at this woman who appears to have lost everything in terms of credibility and asks her for help. Mm. <laughs> Can you give me a drink? And we don't find anything about you're a sinner or I'm the Messiah or anything till the end of a conversation. And then it's gently done, go, go and get your husband. And, you know, it, it's that building of the relationship with people that sometimes God will lead us to, who we think, oh, should I be talking with him or should I be involved with her? Or, you know, it's, it, John tells us Jesus had to go through Samaria. And by that, he's telling us it was part of God's timetable for him. And I think if we say, please, Lord, lead me to those people that you know I have to meet and show me then how to engage in a conversation without making them feel inferior or sinful. What was Jesus? Friend of sinners. Yeah. Not Pharisees. He certainly wasn't a friend of the Pharisees, that's true. <laughs> they tried to kill him a time or two. So. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it was interesting because it was that story, you see, who uh, that called me into broadcasting and media because someone was preaching on it once and he said, do you realize the whole town heard because of that woman? And then he said, so what can you do that will reach your own community? Hmm. And that's when I thought God say, well, have a go at broadcast and have a go at writing and so on so um, you talk about these broadcasts um and so and writing yeah and writing and and you do um short broadcasts on your local radio so so talk about that well yeah um it it mutates all the time uh, i write for local press all the time every week mm -hmm. so i write columns looking at life issues and quirky things that happen nationally, internationally, but also important issues like Brexit here in the UK or mm -hmm. whatever else. Uh, and I write for two local newspapers there and reach probably about 40,000 people a week. And okay. the purpose of that is to, to get them thinking and, oh, Christians may have something to say on this. And I get amazing responses. You know, never, I never go through a week without people saying something about the columns. Hmm. In terms of radio, I used to do regular thoughts for the for the day on Swansea Sound, which covers all of Southwest Wales. That led to running my own program, uh, an hours long program, every Sunday morning, which I would produce and present from from studio. Mm -hmm. But I ended up so busy, I had to let that go. In the past, I was running a two hour show from Radio Pembrokeshire, which is here in Pembrokeshire. I'm good. But the opportunities continue, and at the moment, I think my major broadcasting opportunities are with the BBC, the yeah. um, national broadcasters. So yesterday, I was finishing off the second of my services, timing it and checking it with a producer friend in Cardiff, uh, who is totally different to me. You know, she, uh, she, she's got such a totally different lifestyle. She knows where I stand I know where she stands, uh -huh. and we get on like a house on fire. We work together because um, I think we respect each other, even if we disagree. And we can, in fact, she asked me once to do a program on Jesus being controversial. I said, "Oh, okay, yeah." 
um, because I said, being the light of the world, he was controversial. And I came back with a script and she said, I didn't mean that controversial. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, he was so controversial, people wanted to kill him. So how controversial Uh, do you want? (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Uh, so at the moment, most of my broadcasting is present, is producing a couple of, like I've just done two services, one for just before Christmas, uh, one for just after Christmas, there'll be half hour services. And then other opportunities come up, like there's a local radio station that I didn't even know existed uh, two weeks ago, phoned me up and said, could I go in and chat to the guy for two hours on a Monday night? So yeah, uh, I'll be doing that in two or three weeks time. That's awesome. So, so your your yeah. BBC broadcast, are they like a sermon, basically? Uh, they, they're half-hour services, and they okay. go out all over Wales. And um, I choose the music and choose the readings and then uh, do a reflection and prayers on them. Okay. So the, the one I was going through yesterday, we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes particularly and the fact that Jesus wants to share amazing blessings with us, but also challenge us to live his lifestyle then. And, and trying to get over the, the, the fact that the Christian story, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not just about, oh, when I die, I go to heaven. But we've got this glorious thought that when he comes back, he's going to recreate the world. And I'm going to have a, a body like his. Mm. I've never heard that put more clearly than someone I met when I was leading a holiday tour years ago in Turkey. Uh, and a lady told me she, she intended, and her husband, they intended being missionaries in, in France. <laughs> we back to France. Yeah. And uh, he had a heart attack and died. And she was left with two young children. And she was devastated. And she said some time later, she was kneeling beside his grave. And, you know, breaking her heart. Because everything, all the dreams were dashed. And she said, then suddenly to her amazement, she saw a rainbow in the sky. And then she saw a chrysalis turn into a butterfly in front of her very eyes. And she said, God said to me, that's what it's going to be like for your husband. Mm. So that's the Christian story, isn't it? Yeah. That's how it ends. So constantly looking for ways in broadcasting or in writing to somehow bring that sense of hope uh, and of peace and of relevance. That if I can, uh, years ago, I don't know if I said this earlier on, but I gave Mo, who ultimately married me, a choice. It was either me or God. Uh, if I can come to faith, anyone can. Mm-hmm. And you took all of these um, these things that you are um, doing, these broadcasts, and then you put them into a book, right, that you uh, put out last year. The broadcasts, although I've used them in broadcasting as well, uh, I've done several books that the key ones have been looking at uh, an adventure we got involved in in the 1990s, and uh, God called us to do that, and we saw the most amazing miracles occur. So I, I wrote a book, a history of that. Because the church I was linked with was actually in the middle of a battlefield. Wow. Someone, someone was shot dead the night I walked in. And do not worry, my brother. You know, that was the, the pastor looking at me. Do not worry, my brother. No, I'm not worried at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, won't, I won't tell Mo where I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> although she did find out. Um, 
But um, so I wrote one there about, we call it Miracles of Mercy. It just so happened based on the, the thing in the book of Ruth, you know, God's coincidences, his God incidences, if you like. Mm. That, that. But a little while ago, things I'd done in thoughts for the day and um, writing in columns, someone said, why didn't you put those in a book called Little Thoughts About a Big Cock? Well, I came up with the title. But it, again, it's meant to be evangelistic in the sense of, Give it to someone and get them reading. There's yeah. a story in there about a, a lady in Australia, I think, who parked at a traffic light and um, didn't go through because it was red. And they found her, was it two days later, whatever, she was slumped over the steering wheel. Yeah. She, yeah. You know, I think her name was Laura McKenzie. Stories like that, but then other life stories. What can we learn? Just enough to get people thinking maybe there's something in this Christian thing. The other book I've just been involved in writing is we've got a group in Cardiff who are involved in anti-trafficking and anti-slavery. <clears throat> they formed a coffee uh, roasting company and the proceeds go towards it. They've got a prayer group. Okay. Uh, they One or two folk they've brought out of trafficking and they've trained as baristas and they go in and out of schools and they wanted a book for children to um, to give it to children in schools that was... You know, at a level that was sensitive and childlike in its language and so on. And we're about to launch that at the beginning of um, 2020. So I love writing. It's good. That's For amazing. Me, it's, it's, not, it's not hard work. It's fun. <laughs> That's when you know you're a writer because uh, yeah. I know that writing a book is hard work. But if you enjoy it, then that's a good thing. I, I, yeah, I re really enjoy it. In fact, this morning... Um, We've heard of a tragedy. Uh, I, I write for a Christian online news service as well called not Christianity Today, but Christian Today. Uh -huh. And um, there's a particular tragedy up online that they're talking about. And so I thought James Dobson wrote a book called When God Doesn't Make Sense. Mm. And so I've, I've quickly, I just had an hour spare before we would chat. And I thought, right, I'll try and get something down on paper quickly. Looking at the the prophet of Bakuk, oh. you know, where he's all about questions, not answers, isn't he? Mm -hmm. And then he comes up with that. And the righteous shall live by faith, which basically means you hang on in there when you haven't got a clue what God is doing. Mm -hmm. You know. That's, that's a hard place to be, <laughs> for sure. Oh, yeah. It's an yeah. incredibly hard place to be. Um, but Abaku comes through to it because he remembers what God has done. And he says, because the Jews, so I'm, I'm told, didn't have a, a word for history. They had a word for memory. It wasn't so much history, which was something out there. It was memory, which was all about our family experience of God. And if he's brought us out of Egypt, we can trust him. Hmm. If he's delivered us from Pharaoh, we can trust him. And Christians go further then, don't they, and say, well, if he's conquered death, we'll trust him. I was going to say, when Habakkuk was writing, Jesus he, hadn't been born yet. So it was just yeah. remembering how God had been faithful to the Israelites. It, yeah. it didn't even include like the, great, <laughs> like the greatest thing he was about to do. Yeah. Which yeah. is why Paul can then say, and I, fi I think I finished the, the thing this morning with, we can grieve, yet not without hope. Mm -hmm. And the hope is based on memory, memory that Jesus has conquered death. Yeah. yeah. 
So do you have a title for this new book that you're writing? Or not yet? The, the new one for the trafficking? Yeah. It's called Brave. Okay. Yeah, it's all about a little, a little girl and her teddy bear. Uh, it's a bit of a fantasy, but it, it's meant to be that because of the, you know, the, the level that it's at. Right. And how the teddy bear helps her with his mm -hmm. cheeky little wink and so on. <clears throat> but it, it raises the issue of trafficking in a very childlike, sensitive way, and parents can look at it. I'll make sure you get a copy. Yes, thank you. <laughs> That's, I'm like, <laughs> is this something that just they're going to be giving out, or can we get this? Because I'd love to have a copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can, can uh, people can order your uh, little thoughts about a big god on Amazon, correct? That's on Amazon, yeah, I checked. I, I, because I knew we were going to be talking, I, I checked to see if my It Just So Happened isn't, but it, it sold out and it's gone. Uh, and we, we haven't done a reprint yet, so one okay. can't get one. But um, I'd love you to read it. Yeah. I'd love you to read it sometime. Yeah. Because I, I have it, and I have, um, I'm almost three quarters of the way through. And it's, I mean, you're, the, the way that you've written that book is um, in a great, just simple, almost like you could read it as a part of your devotion if you wanted to every day and be encouraged. Um, it was done in 52 sections. Yes. So they could be a thought for the week uh -huh. or, or whatever, yeah. So if we have any listeners out there that maybe have some questions for you about, um, you know, the alliance that you're involved in or Messy Church or anything, uh, is there a way that people can get a hold of you to ask those questions? Would love to be able to respond. And I'm perfectly happy for you to put my email out because it goes out on my column and things like that. Okay. okay. It's, you've got my email address. I do, it's yes. RJames2954 awesome. at btinternet.com. Okay. We'd love to hear from them. Awesome. Yeah. And I will put that and I will also put um, your book on our um, show notes like, with links so people can uh, get mm. to those things. And um, the people can also, I'm sure, look for your name on um, christiantoday.com. Is that yep. correct? Yeah. That's right. Okay. And they can read yeah. some of your columns. Um, so now we're to the point in the show where I ask the same two questions of all of our guests. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, the first question that we have is, who was it that had the greatest impact on your spiritual formation? <laughs> that, that is such a challenging one. But in the end, I, I think it has to be more my wife. Yeah. Uh, without whom I would probably, unless, you know, God used someone else, but he's certainly the one that she used to bring me to faith and uh, has challenged me most by her commitment to prayer uh, and to the, the calling that God has given her. She, she was willing to give up her work, to um, travel with me to become a pastor, it meant her giving up her job in a school and things like that, mm. the, the life training college. And she's been such a faithful wife. So ultimately, I think it would have to be Mo, uh, her witness and her prayer life. Then there are one or two others, maybe the pastor that I mentioned a moment ago, who was called to pastor this church about a year before the war broke out. And when the war broke out, the opposing sides were either side of his church. The church was literally in the middle of the battlefield. Wow. And he stayed because he lived in the building. 
uh, and his wife and his little one. And I remember talking on one occasion about, so why did you stay? He said, well, God called me. I said, yeah, but that was before the war broke out. Yeah. Why did you stay after the war broke out? And I just got this feeling. He was looking at me thinking, and then we talked. But don't you believe God knows the future? Don't you think he knew that the war was going to break out? Mm. And he, his car was blown up while he was visiting people, you know. Wow. <clears throat> I have shrapnel in my, in my little um, cupboard here from a house not far away where a lady's head was blown off because they were just random shells, 2,000 a night. Um, but he stayed there. Wow. The very first night I arrived there, uh, I heard them singing in this building, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. <laughs> Foretaste oh of gosh. glory is mine. And, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, ta- the town was literally in the middle of the battle. The church was literally in the middle of the battlefield. So I think people like that. And to be honest, there are so many. I, you know, I, I do have to say that <laughs> that is when whatever your husband's call becomes your own as well. I'm sure she could have said, you're crazy. I'm out. Yeah. yeah. And, but her husband felt God's call to stay there. And I'm, I'm, I I don't know, but I'm sure she also felt a call in that direction as well, or she might have left as well. Absolutely. And there's a little one who's now grown up and got a child herself. And I suppose I identify because as I'm putty in Mo's hands, He's putty in hers. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so then the last question is, uh, based on what we talked about today, what would be your one challenge that you have for our listeners? I think the one that probably challenges me most. Uh, I got involved in this mission because the, the guy who spearheaded it, who was a friend, and you know we, we worked together, basically said to God on one occasion at the Bible study, I'll do anything as long as you tell me what it is I have to do. Mm. He thought that would involve helping homeless people in the city of Swansea. Within a month, it meant leading a convoy of aid to a war zone. Wow. So my challenge would be, how willing are you to do anything or rather to say to God, I'll do anything as long as you show me clearly. Mm. There's a book called Anything by Jenny Allen. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, I don't know that one, no. Uh, and it's exactly what you're talking about. She and her husband felt that they needed to pray, God, anything that you want us to do, we will do. And then it talks about the journey that God then took mm. them through. Basically like, okay, you prayed this, you know, and, and so I'm going to take you up on it and stories just like what you just said of, you know, it was, we thought we were talking about this, anything, this direction. And God says, well, you said anything. So, you know, and she challenges her readers to do the same thing. Like, are you willing to pray anything? Because if you are, if you are, God will take you up on it. Can I tell you one more story? Yes, please do. That pastor's wife, uh, and I've never forgotten her telling this story 
uh, with tears still coming down her eyes as she's telling it a couple of years later. Her young sister was gang raped by a group of soldiers. Her dad was bayoneted, not to death, because they knew where to stick the bayonets. And then they put the two of them in a minefield for fun. Oh, my God. And she heard this, and she was due to be at communion the following day. And she, and I think he, certainly she begged God to send someone to take the service because she couldn't forgive, and she couldn't take communion without forgiving. Yeah. And in true God fashion, <laughs> no, no one came. Yeah. And she forgave the soldiers who gang-raped her sister, and she forgave the soldiers who brutally injured her dad and watched them in a minefield to see if they'd blow up or not. Mm. That's what I call anything. Wow. It's those it's, types it's, of situations where it's so hard to picture it unless you're there and involved in it. But it's the faith of those on the other side that is so yeah. inspiring and amazing. Well, when I, whenever I'm faced with a challenge, then I think, what? My, my challenge is nothing mm -hmm. to that. And if I think I couldn't or I can't do something, I think, well, if they were given the strength to do it, I could be too. And it may well be that there's someone who will listen to this who needs to forgive someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If she can forgive them, who can yeah. we forgive? And she's radiant. You know, she, she, although when she tells the story, she cried. She's such a strong character, such a lovely, lovely character. They, they, they all are as a family. Yeah. Now, do we know what happened to her sister and her dad? Um, I've met sister and dad. Uh, sister still, I think, bore scars. Dad, you know, it, it damaged him. Yeah. yeah. But they didn't die in the minefield. They didn't die in the minefield. Wow. Well, that's leaving a lot for our listeners, and I love it. So thank you. <laughs> it's lovely to talk to you. It's lovely to talk to you, too. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with our listeners, because I know that it's been encouraging for me. So I know it will be encouraging for them. So thank you very much. Yeah. Bless you, lovely. Okay. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you're walking away with something to consider. If you like what you hear each month and you'd like to support the Journey of Ruth podcast, head over to patreon.com slash journeyofruth. For just $5 a month, you can help support the website, reduce hosting fees, and allow me the ability to be kind to our podcast guests. I'd love to interact with you during the week over on Facebook or Instagram at Journey of Ruth. You can also find me on our website, journeyofruthpodcast.com. There you can hear all of our past episodes. And if you're looking for a speaker for your future group events, whether they're live or virtual, I would love to get your group on the calendar. Just fill out the form under the speaking tab. I hope you guys have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I will see you on Tuesday in two weeks here on the Journey of Ruth podcast.